1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, And of the good doctrine that you have followed. Lord, in this life you have not promised a pure church. In fact, you've instructed us ahead of time that the church would be a mixed multitude. Now, you are working to purify your church through the ordinary means of grace that you have given to us as a church. And so, Lord, we use those regular means you have given us to pursue holiness, to pursue purity, to pursue truth and righteousness within your church. And as we do that, Lord, we know that that will Bring to the forefront those who are not following you, who have ulterior motives. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a sensitive spirit that when something is amiss in the church, we spot it and we can deal with it appropriately for your glory and your honor, Lord. We ask that you would give us as we hear the words of this sermon, instructions to this end, all for your great name's sake. In your name, amen. Jesus, in the parables that he gave in Matthew chapter 13, gave several indications about what the makeup of his church would look like. There's one specific one that I want to take note of as we begin. And it begins in verse 24. He says, The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up, More grain, and then the weeds appeared also. Well, the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said, Do you want us to go out and to gather them? But the master wisely said, no, 
lest in gathering the weeds you would root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus goes on to explain this parable to his disciples and to give you the gist of it, he says that in the church there are going to be both people who are what he calls wheat, very good, look great, what he intended to be planted, but there's also going to be weeds in the field which initially may even look really good and may look very similar to the grain that has been planted but after a time it will become evident that the field is full of both wheat and weeds both good grain and that which is fit for nothing but to be burned now jesus said this is the way the church is going to be the kingdom of heaven His kingdom here on this earth is going to be full of both those who are good and those who are bad. He reiterates this in Matthew chapter 25 when he says there's a great separation of sheep and goats. He's separating those who are good, who he had intended for his service and for his kingdom, and those who are not. Now this picks up very early on in the church. In fact, you find in Acts chapter 5 maybe a very first initial beginning of there being weeds growing up in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And you know that story where Ananias and Sapphira had conspired to lie to the people in the church saying that they were going to give a certain amount of money when in reality they had held part of the price of this property that they had sold back and had lied about it and God had actually got gone to very severe lengths with those two well maybe not severe maybe it's the appropriate lengths and we just presume upon his mercy that he's going to act merciful in every instance but he's not obligated to and so there in that instance those two people who conspired against the church were killed by the Holy Spirit Ananias and Sapphira. But in Acts chapter 20, as Paul uh, begins his trek back to Jerusalem from one of his, his second missionary journey, he gets to a place, Miletus, and he calls the Ephesian elders there to himself because he didn't want to, he couldn't take the time to go to Ephesus, which incidentally is where Timothy is, where Paul's writing to him right now in this book. So he's very, very, very familiar with this church. He understands it well. He understands these people. He knows their makeup. He knows their proclivities. He probably understands wheat and tares and has experienced some of them in that church himself. So what Paul does is he tells the Ephesian elders, beware, be wise, out of the midst of the congregation there will arise amongst you wolves, savage wolves who are going to distort the doctrine of God, who are going to try to thwart the work that the Lord is doing, and going to try to steal and rip off, as it were, the faith of some people, right? That's what Peter tells us the 
the devil seeks to do. He roars around like a lion, seeing whom he may devour. And the way he devours you is by getting you to believe a lie and to believe falsehood rather than the truth of the living God. Which takes us into our text here. Notice it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So, these people are apparently within the church because they're departing from the faith by words that they are hearing that are purported to be words of God, words of spirituality, words of truth, words that supposedly would produce righteousness in you and in individuals within the church. But they are, in fact, lying, deceitful doctrines of demons themselves. But first of all, it says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, I have a dispensational background originally, initially. And so when I would hear these latter times, when I would hear that phrase, my ears would perk up and I would immediately think, oh, the tribulation. Oh, that seven-year time of the really bad stuff. That's what the latter times is. My presupposition that I was taught was that this phrase, latter times, referred to that end time seven-year tribulation period. And I always went there. That's where my mind would go. It's the way I was taught and the way I was trained. One of the things that moved me from dispensationalism to a historical premium and then eventually to an amillennial perspective was an understanding that this phrase, in the latter times, actually is referring to the time from the beginning of the church to Jesus' return. That whole period of time. So far it's been 2,000 years and a little change has been these latter times. Look with me at 2 Timothy. You're in 1 Timothy, so it's just a couple of pages to your right. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul, again writing to Timothy, again in Ephesus, he says this. Understand this, that in the last days, there's a phrase, ooh, spooky, spooky. There will come times of difficulty. For, here's what the times of difficulty are going to look like. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and unappeasable. They're slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now that sounds like today. That sounds like I could pop open the phone here and start scrolling through anybody's feed of any social media and I'm going to find all of these things listed 
pretty quickly, I think. But look what he says here to Timothy. Avoid such people. What does that tell you about the time frame that Paul is thinking of? The last times are right now, right? Paul is thinking in his mind, we are in these last times. We are in these latter days. Because he tells people, in the last days, this is what it's going to look like. And so, avoid these people. Implying, because we are in the last days. We are in these latter times. We are. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That's always been true in the church that people have departed from the faith. They have gone into the church, and I don't just mean the building, but into the group of people who collectively were the church of the living God, have looked really good, have expressed faith, professed faith, been baptized even, have come out and have gone out and probably done wonderful works and have looked really good. In fact, we see this even in the book of Acts with that guy, Bar-Jesus, who wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Peter came, he was baptized. He looked really good. He looked and professed faith in Jesus Christ. Yet when Peter called him on his sin and told him what was really in his heart, he had no room for repentance, but only asked, well, pray for me. And we see this throughout the church. In fact, we're in 2 Timothy. Turn over to 1 John. This is a passage that you should all be familiar with. And if you're not, this will be good for you to see. 1 John in chapter 2. Now, 1 John was one of the very last books of the Bible that was written. And we don't only know that because it's here at the end, but we know that because John was one of the last living apostles who was alive. But here he's writing to churches at large as the last living apostle and warning them against a heresy that is beginning to rise up within the church, which will become Gnosticism. Which will become this idea that I can have a secret knowledge and a a better understanding of God because I go through secret rituals or I know secret sayings or that, that kind of sort of thing. And that sort of thing leads to a division between my body and my spirit and how do I relate my spirit to this earth and all kinds of weird things like that. So that's what John is writing against. But he says this, verse 18 of chapter 2. Okay? Children, it is the last hour. Sounds like he's pretty convinced that he's in the end times himself too. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Ooh, (laughs) sure sounds like end time stuff. So many Antichrists have come, already come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's very confident he's in these latter times as well. And here's what he has to say about the makeup of these latter times. It sounds very Pauline. It sounds very similar to what Paul is saying here in our passage we're looking at. Verse 19. They, who? The Antichrists. The people in the latter days who are opposed to Christ, they went out from us. Now, what's the implication there? That they were a part of us. At some point, 
They were in our group. They were in the church because you can't go out from us if you weren't already with us, right? So you have to be with us in order to go out from us. So he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So even though they were in the group, they weren't truly in their heart of hearts a part of the us that John is referring to, the true church, the believers. For if they, those who went out from us, had been of us, they would have continued with us. Because a mark of a true Christian is you continue in your faith. To use the famous phrase, you persevere as a saint. You continue on. You don't fall away. A true Christian does not fall away. A true Christian can struggle and can struggle mightily, but they do not go out from us. They do not deny the faith and turn their back on Christ that they had once professed. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So John is experiencing and teaching this church what this is going to look like when these people depart from the faith like Paul is talking about here. Now this phrase, depart from the faith, has caused a lot of confusion in people's minds and made people think, oh, well, it must be that you can be a Christian and lose your salvation. And they'll quote a passage like Hebrews chapter 3. Let me just... Read that for you real quick. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Oh, man. The new Bible problem. (laughs) The pages don't always want to turn. Take care, brothers. Okay, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We'll quote that and we'll see you can fall away from the living God. He even uses the word brothers here. Well, sure, but John used the word us. They were of us. There was a time where we could not discern the heart of this particular individual person. And he's telling the brethren, beware brethren at large, beware church, Beware congregation, lest there be in any one of you of the congregation an evil and unbelieving heart. It's a good warning because I don't know your hearts, frankly. And so the warning needs to be given that within the us, there's going to be some of us who are going to walk out and depart from us because they have an evil and unbelieving heart. But if they were of us, they would have continued with us, right? How about Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5, beginning in, well, just really verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Okay? He's writing to the church in Galatia. If you know this book, it's a hardcore book about staying faithful to Christ. Don't turn in your back on the gospel that you've heard and turning to a different gospel. So he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So again, you have these people who were in the context of the church who at one point were influenced by grace. They were influenced by the gospel and they came in under that influence. 
But then as they were in the midst of us, they began to be influenced by other doctrine and other teaching. And this particular teaching in this book was that you need to follow the law to be justified. In our text, we're looking at them teaching that you need to not be married and abstain from certain foods in order for some kind of spirituality or some kind of righteous living. So you see, it comes in all manner of ways. There's all kinds of things that people can come in, be among us, and speak and believe, and it be error. And it can look really good, and they can look really good. And frankly, oftentimes they do. They look really good. They act really good. They're so kind. They're nice and gentle. They're not always the standing on the pulpit, screaming, yelling Bible thumper who's, you know, screaming at you, you're all going to hell and it's only me and maybe my people I pick kind of thing. (laughs) They look really good. And oftentimes they come in and they'll sit there. And I remember in, in our own context, let's talk about us here. A family came in. They looked really good. I mean, they, they had all their kids lined up in a row and they were very dutiful. And, you know, they, 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 they seemed like, you know, every homeschooler's dream of a way a family would want to be. And then all of a sudden I began to talk with this guy and began to hear certain things that would make me raise my eyebrow and Make me wonder. Nothing that was like so overt heresy. And I was like, this is not acceptable. You got to go. But things that made me wonder. And the last straw that came up was finally this issue of sinless perfection. That you as a Christian could and in fact should get to the point where you are so close with God and so right with him that you could live a life where you don't sin. Here on earth, not glorified yet. And that was the end. And they ended up going out from us. And after a short period of time, it was made manifest that they were not of the faith, I'm going to say, to begin with. So they will come into the church and they will look really good oftentimes. They will be very influential and persuasive. But the truth is, is what they've devoted themselves to. Look what it says here. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, some people really like spooky things. Right? There's all kinds of shows and There's whole genres of movies and entertainment that are all dedicated to the spooky things, right? And people love that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a sense where I kind of like some of that a little bit, too. It's fine. But oftentimes what that describes and implies is that, you know, if you're going to be drawn away like this, like some demon is literally going to show up and start talking to you, and you're going to mindlessly follow him under some kind of spooky witch spell or something like that. That's not the way Satan works. 99% of the time. It might be like that in certain far-flung away places, and that's how Satan gets people who are animists and their kind of weird religion. But that's not normally how Satan works. Because Satan wants to deceive you, he's not out trying to scare you. All he wants to do is get your focus off of Jesus and off of the gospel. 
And if he can do that, if it's subtle, he doesn't need to go to all those great big extremes. Right? He doesn't need to put all this major effort out if all he has to do is get your focus subtly off of the gospel onto something else and that'll damn your soul just as much as anything else he could put in front of you. So all he needs is just a little tiny bit of your attention and he can, as he twists and focuses that, get you off of that way of thinking. Look how it says here. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through... This tells us where the teachings come from. The insincerity of liars. It comes through people. It comes through men and women who are insincere. They believe, they come in and they believe, or they'll, pardon me, they'll say one thing with their mouth, but actually be believing something else in their heart. And they come in and they'll profess all manner of good things. They'll look Trinitarian. They'll sound whatever, probably Calvinistic if they were to come in here. But yet there would be a demonic and a deceitful spiritual influence that was in their heart that they would wait and they would look and they would subtly begin to utter in order to draw people away from the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? So we've seen several instances that we've looked at so far of how this kind of thing happens within the church. It subtly happens. They begin to speak these truths. The wheats grow up and the tares or the weeds grow up right next to it. They look really good until a time comes when everyone can see and it's evident Oh no, there's some really bad things going on here. So, what Paul's doing in our text here is he's warning. Timothy in advance saying, be ready for this stuff. This is happening. This is the latter times we're living in. And we know the Spirit said that people are going to depart from the faith during this church age, during this time where God is working in his church. And they're going to do it through deceitful spirits and demonic doctrines as people speak lies. Because they're insincere and their consciences are seared. That's why you can have a TV preacher like a Joel Osteen. He's, I, I grant, he's low-hanging fruit, right? <laughs> he really is, easy pickings. So, but he gets up there and he waves this Bible around and he says, whatever this book says I am, I am, right? That kind of thing. I don't, that might not be his exact quote, but it's something like, he says something like that. And then he begins to say all kinds of manner of things that the Bible doesn't say he is. You see, there's an insincerity with a Joel Osteen. He'll throw this Bible around because he can get away with that. And he knows, especially being in the buckle of the Bible belt there in Texas, he can draw all manner of people in if he's very charismatic and he holds this book up and he does this thing an awful lot. Because that's what Billy Graham did and that's what all the guys did before him. So he'll keep waving this thing around and talking about this thing. All the while, the words coming out of his mouth are anything but what's in this book. Subtle, right? He'll say God wants you to be happy and you go, well, okay, yeah. God wants you to prosper. I mean, God really wants the best for you. You're one of his kids. I mean, doggone it, doesn't, don't you want the best for your kids? Don't you? Well, if you want the best for your kids and, you know, you're not perfect yet, don't you think God who is perfect wants the best for his kids perfectly? 
Okay. And people who are ignorant and people who haven't been taught and people who don't have a pastor like Timothy who's looking out for this stuff or someone like Paul who's looking out for this stuff, that begins to get persuasive for people who aren't under the influence regularly of good, honest, solid biblical teaching. The heresy is always going to be more sexy. The heresy is always going to be a little bit more ooh factor. There's going to be a little bit of glitter and sparkle to it. The gospel is the plain old rugged cross. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. But it's that plain old rugged cross that we need, that we need, that we need, that we need, that we need. Now, these particular people that Paul brings up here, it says that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods that have been created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe. Now, first of all, forbid marriage. By extension, this denies the created order. Okay? What do I mean? Well, first of all, let's just simply talk about marriage at first. They're saying... There's this ascetic kind of lifestyle. What ends up happening with Gnosticism is it branches off into two veins or two streams. One is I am my spirit and this body is just my vehicle, like me driving a car. So whatever I do with the car doesn't affect my spirit. So those, that brand of Gnosticism indulged itself in a lot of the pleasures of the world and didn't see that as affecting its spirit. The other vein was one that said, my spirit isn't connected to my body, like me driving in a car and my car is not a part of me. But in order for me to be spiritual, in order for my spirit to become strong, I need to deny everything that my flesh wants. Okay? You can imagine which one was more popular. <laughs> but if you think about it, if somebody's in the church and they're trying to be holy and they're trying to follow God, they're trying to follow his law, his ways, and be pleasing to the Lord and live a life that's pleasing to him. Well, there's an appeal to the one that says my spirit is segregated from my body. So therefore I need to absolutely mortify my flesh. I mean, I could go to Romans and read such language, right? Well, we also in our bodies desire certain things that God has instituted that marriage provides fulfillment in, right? Paul talked about sexual issues and said, don't forbid people to be married. In fact, he tells married couples, don't stay apart sexually for a long period of time apart from your desire to pray and to fast just for a specific period of time. Lest you, he uses the language, burn with lust. So marriage has been instituted to provide something that God has given to us that's actually a good thing. But what the Gnostics were saying was, no, it's not a good thing to desire that. It's not a good thing to go down that road. So forbidding marriage at all, and that was appealing to certain people within the church. And you can see why. It still is today. You go down right around the corner, here's the Roman Catholic Church. Right? St. John the Baptist Catholic Church is right around the corner here. And there's men who live there, who dwell there, who have taken a life of celibacy, vows of celibacy, because they're ascetic, ascetic, 
They're, they're forbidding themselves marriage in order to fulfill the ordinance of being pastor, priest, there in the church. This would deny that. This passage here says that that is not a valid way to exhibit your spirituality, to walk with God. Now I'm going to go even further and say, you know, there are a lot of people in our day and age that says Jesus and the Bible never talks about certain types of marriage. In our culture, it would be gay marriage. We have a very big popular movement right now that is, you know, validated that whole entire movement. And some people say, well, the Bible never talks about it. Well, God does in Genesis chapter 1, 2. He says that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Leave and cleave to his wife. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 talks about the fact that a man and a woman are the ones who should be married. And so he definitely there in that instance says that that's the only valid union. He's doing it in reference to divorce, but yet still in that same time, he's saying the only valid union is between a man and a woman. Well, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, both in their respective epistles of Ephesians and 1 Peter, also talk about how marriage is between a man and a woman. You see, the reason why there is no straight verse that says, thou shalt not have gay marriage, is because it was assumed that this is the way God had created from the very beginning, and anything contrary to God's created order is a violation of God's law and God's ways and God's means. God created us. He is free to do with us and tell us how we're supposed to function. I, I remember, you know, do you, does anyone remember having a video cassette recorder, a VHS machine? No? Gee whiz, am I the only one? Okay, thank you, Joel. Gosh, <laughs> I was beginning to think, oh no, the ship is going to sink with this illustration. <laughs> well, you know, these video cassette machines had different ways that you insert the cassette, right? I mean, you, sometimes through the front, sometimes the top. We had this great big one, our very first one, and like half of the top would pop up. And you'd stick the cassette in and you'd have to like muscle the top back down for it to click to get the thing to play. And the remote control had a wire and one button, and it was start and stop. That's all it was. So my dad could sit in his rocking chair and start and stop the movie. That was, that was it. Well, there was all kinds of funny pictures and stuff before there were memes and internet and social media of kids like putting sandwiches in the VCR and plugging them down in there or, you know, some of their toys and ruin their video cassette recorders, right? Well, listen, it's a silly illustration, I grant, but it was designed with a function and a purpose. You stick a video cassette in, pop it down, watch the movie. It's not for sandwich holstering, right? It's not for the kids to stick their toys in. Well, the same way is true with us. God has created us with a purpose and an intention. And the purpose and intention is that men and women come together, we procreate, and we take dominion over the earth. That's simplistic, and I go know that there's a whole lot more to it. And I would love to get into that, but that's not the point here. The point is to show that what we can do with this text is take it and see the extension that goes out from it so we can say that it isn't just the forbidding of marriage. It's a violation of any of God's intended creative order that Paul is saying beware of. 
Secondly, is the abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, this is important because a lot of times in the early church, there's Jews who would come in and try to Jewishize the church, right? That was the problem that Paul and Peter had their disagreement that we read about in the book of Galatians. And it was in reference to food. Now, Peter, he had that vision in Acts chapter 10 of that big sheet coming down with all of the unclean animals. And there in that instance, he says, I'm not going to rise, kill and eat God, which God commanded him to do because I've never eaten anything unclean. Which is interesting because Peter was there in Mark chapter 7 when it says in Mark chapter 7 that God declared all foods to be clean through the words of Jesus Christ. So he had already understood or should have understood that Jesus had declared all foods to be clean. But yet in Acts chapter 10, he needs this visitation by God these three times with the sheep to understand that not only is all food now clean, but the Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom of God as well. So the abstinence of foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. In our modern day, there are Christians, I guess we can say that at least at first, if we're using the term broadly as us, who might go out from us, you get what I'm saying, who are vegetarian Christians, vegan Christians. I have some friends who are like this, or some maybe not friends, they're that close, but who would go along the lines with saying that we weren't created to eat this meat. God didn't intend that from the beginning. It happens after the flood, and it's a, a... condensation on God's part for us. Apparently before that they didn't eat meat. So therefore we weren't designed that way. So we should go back to the way we were originally designed and begin to eat like they did before the flood. And that these are God's creatures and God created them and that we should not be eating them. It's actually murder or killing or violence or it's a violation of that particular commandment to kill these animals and to eat them since they are God's creation every bit as much as us. You see, what happens there is that you take us being created in the image of God and you bring us down to the same level as animals, which God himself is the one that said we were the ones who were creating his image, not animals. They don't have souls. They don't have spirits in the same way that we do. All dogs don't go to heaven. Sorry, (laughs) but they don't. People go to heaven. Saved people who've been born again. Abstinence from certain foods might for a time be beneficial if you're setting yourself aside for prayer and for fasting, but that's it. You don't get any type of spiritual bonus points if you decide, yeah, I'm not going to eat pork anymore. I'm going to do it for Jesus. I'm not going to eat meat anymore. I'm only going to eat fish on Fridays or whatever it is. You don't get those kind of spiritual points from the Lord because everything God created is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Why? Why is this the case? Because everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received 
with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. For the Christian, eating and drinking are not secular activities. We do it all for the glory of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is something that we do for His glory. And so there's nothing, if we're going to abstain from something, there's something in the background there that's saying, this thing that we're abstaining from, if I were to partake of, I couldn't partake of and glorify God, and that's wrong. That's what he's saying here. That idea, that understanding, the presupposition that you think if you partake of this, it's somehow not going to be pleasing to the Lord is in error. Everything has been given to us. Now, for health reasons, or you might want to, like I said, for a time, fast and pray. I mean, Daniel, he fasted from meat in the beginning of the book of Daniel. Later on at the end of the book, he fasted from desserts and strong drink for a time in order to pray. So those are legitimate and have their value. But those are for a short little period of time just to focus on praying as you're fasting. You see, everything is received, as everything that is received with thanksgiving is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is one of the reasons why Christians say grace before they eat. We're unique in that. I don't know if you know that, but we're, we are pretty unique in that. And it's something that has always been where we pray before we eat and we thank the Lord for what we're about to receive. And so although there's jokes about praying you know, for the desserts to bless our body, you know, kind of thing. The truth of the matter is, is everything that the Lord has created and everything that we have here can be received with blessing and with honor. So as we finish this up, I'm going to put off verse six till next week. But as we finish this up here, what we need to be reminded of is that there are going to be people who come up within the church. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, beware of false prophets who come to you. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, of us, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Didn't we prophesy in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The fruit we want to be looking out for is the fruit of grace. The fruit of the gospel. The fruit of Jesus Christ and being pointed to him regularly and often. Not pointed to yourself and your works Not to your ways and your means, but in fact, always and ever to Jesus Christ. One of the things John comes back to in 1 John over and over is that people who are living like this, who are not of us, 
they're not going to want to focus on declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. They're going to want to declare that they are Lord or other things are Lord or some other power is Lord. And they might even call it God and they might even sound real good. But as time goes on, we will see their fruit and their fruit's going to be one that is leading people away from the good and blessed truth and the glories of the gospel. And those are the people that we want to call out and be mindful of is wheat, pardon me, weeds, wolves, goats, whatever phrase we want to use biblically. But God loves his church, and I pray that as we continue on, that as we continue to love his word and stay in his word and read his word and meditate on his word, that as we're so in the truth, we'll be able to discern when those errors come through our doors, because they will, beloved. They will. But we want to be wise, and we want to be those who are ready to receive those people who come in with that error and give them the gospel. And if they're not willing to receive it, maybe help them out the doors as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace and mercy that you've shown to us. Lord, we don't deserve this wonderful mercy and grace that you've given to us, but we're grateful for it. And Lord, there's people who want to come in and take advantage of that. They always have. And you know them, you have them marked out. This is not a surprise for you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us, you would cause us to be sensitive so that when they do come through our doors and we do hear that error that wants to point away from grace and away from your cross and away from you being our Lord and Savior to other things and you fulfilling the law for us, that we would see it for what it is, point it out and be able to discern truth from error, Lord. Thank you and in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.